This is Kim. Welcome to a special Sunday episode of People Are Wild, the podcast that dares to ask a lot of different questions. But today, I'm going to be sliding my Monday episode into a Sunday slot. It's kind of like when your favorite television show gets a little preempted, things get slid around. So bear with me this week. I have pushed my Monday episode to Sunday, and there's this very special reason why. Today, May 13th, the day that I'm releasing this, is Mother's Day in the United States. I know I have some international listeners, so I know Mother's Day is a little bit on different days, but in the U.S., where I'm based out of, it is Mother's Day. And for me personally, Mother's Day changed eight years ago, or roughly about eight years ago. My mother passed away in November of 2010, so I wanted to talk a little bit about when we knew that she was sick. And if you listen to that sentence, there's a we in it, because I am joined today by a man that does not need an introduction. He is the ultimate friend of the show, friend of the program, and he has his own hashtag. I don't even really have my own hashtag. He is my dad. He has the beautiful, beautiful hashtag of the P-A-W dad. I think it's pronounced the paw dad. And he has taken time tonight, today, whenever you listen to this, to speak with me a little bit, to speak to all of you about the journey that it was when my mom got sick, because as much as it is going to be emotional to go through some of these things, to relive some of these events with my dad, which I'm very happy you're here for this, I figured today would maybe be an important day to talk about what happens, a little bit about what happens when our loved ones get sick, and what we noticed when my mother got sick. So, Dad, if you will, do you want to do a little introduction? Hi, glad to be on your show. Uh, A a strip follower, I've listened to every episode and sent you the critiques on them. Thanks a lot for inviting me to uh, be with you today. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Sometimes we are separated by thousands of miles, so it's always great when we can talk to each other, and especially great today to be able to talk about the amazing woman that was my mother in her physical form. She is always here, always present with me and on a different form. So just as a disclaimer, I will more than likely get emotional. I think we both will get maybe a little emotional, so we might melt a little bit. And uh, I'm going to probably leave that in to some extent. Mothers are to be celebrated no matter where they exist and on what sense of being that they exist on. So just just know that that's a little bit of a disclaimer. This is going to be a little bit more personal, a little bit more serious, but at the same time, I hope equally entertaining and medically relevant and informative for everybody. So November of 2010 is when my mom did pass, but... Her journey, if you will, to that ending began probably at least almost a year before that. We were, my dad and I, we were talking about this a little bit before uh, we were recording, and we were talking about something that happened in January of 2010. But now that I'm thinking about things, even before then, she always had some problems with anemia. So if you you don't know what anemia is, uh, there's different forms of it, but it does affect a lot more women of the population. And it 
has to do with essentially low blood counts. You have a low H and H, a low hemoglobin, low hematocrit. Now there are different causes for this, and that's something that can be explored maybe a little bit further on another program. But a lot of people kind of have a baseline understanding that anemia means you kind of have low blood counts. Sometimes you might need transfusions, or sometimes you just might need to take iron supplements. My mom had that for a lot of her life, right? Yeah. Yeah, she did. She added from her teenage years all of hip. The reason I mention that is because abnormal blood work kind of follows people with anemia. And if we're talking about somewhat of get to know your host, I've teetered a few times on being anemic myself. Some of that was due purely just because of diet. That's called when you're a teenager and you try and be a vegetarian for two years because, I don't know, maybe it was a trendy thing to do. Is that why I did it? Yeah. <laughs> So I I was a vegetarian for a while, but then I threw myself into being anemic. So basically everyone in the family was like, well, that was fun. Don't do that, please. Let's go ahead and bring back meat to your diet. <laughs> so, but even after that, if I don't watch things correctly in my diet, I teeter on being a little bit anemic. I've never necessarily been diagnosed with it like my mother has. I've never needed blood transfusions. In fact, I give blood. It is something that... You know, I've dealt with to some extent. I have to take iron supplements. I have to, again, watch what I eat. So I know some people have it more severe. I don't know if mom needed. She never needed blood transfusions, I don't think, because of the anemia. I think she just needed supplements, right? Correct. She um, she never got a blood transfusion, but yeah, you're right. Uh, she did. She was on and off supplements most of her adult life. And I mean... Iron supplements, I don't want to get too far into it, but man, they tear up your GI tract. So it's either one way or the other. Either it's tearing you up and you're going a lot or you're backed up and you don't go a lot. So staying on iron supplements sometimes is a burden and I totally get why a person would stop doing that, especially if they felt better. But if you need it, you need to keep taking it and that's something that you need to discuss with your doctor. Now, in my mom's case, like I said, her blood work has always been a little bit abnormal. But I do remember, I want to say in 2009, she had a full workup done by a questionable hematologist. Maybe we could tell a little bit of that story about how she was, I think, referred to this doctor by her doctor. And my mom, God bless her, was ahead of the holistic naturopathic trend. But to a certain extent where I think some of the doctors she came into contact with might have had questionable background in education. And the one, yeah. I was just going to say, was that the uh, Q-man that I used to call him? The one that, like, <laughs> the one that fled the country? Yes, <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, you're like, who is this doctor? And we never could look up who it was because they fled the country. She went because her one doctor, who was also kind of kooky, referred her to this other questionable doc. And you went with her to that follow-up, right? I did. And while I was there, I asked her at the time, do you want me to go in the office with you? Because he was giving her the results. And that was the first time ever she said, no, I'll uh, just stay out here. I'm not, I'll go through it with them and I'll let you know. The antennas start going. You had told me at some point that you think that she was told that she needed follow-up because there was a concern about her blood work 
But I remember, and she told you yes. this too, I remember her coming home. I remember it clear as day that she said, there's no cancer. They told me I didn't have any cancer. And we all like were like, okay, it's just your anemia being weird. Yeah, they said that her, her white cell count may just been normally low. But it, it sounded strange to me. And it was the one time that I... I felt, and, and I guess we all kind of looked to see where signs come up that because I trusted your mom totally, I, I, I didn't push it. And that's, that was the one thing that I now looking back, I wish I would have pushed it for a, a, another opinion on that, yeah. but I didn't. And, uh, I, I don't know what would have happened if I would have, but I, I know that's one of those would have, should have, could have been things that I, I I have thought about over the years and that that was the first one yeah that was I think as far back that we can remember was that in 2009 because she was fine for that and then in 2010 right around January I want to say is when things started to trend downward I guess is the only way I could say it right right yeah she um well, to begin with, the Bell's palsy wasn't going away. In January of 2010, I remember my mom knocking on my door. And at this point, I was in, I was already in the actual nursing school, nursing program. I was in my second semester, I believe, at that time. And I remember my mom knocking on my door. It was a weekend. It was probably a Saturday. And I opened the door and she said, look at my face. Do you think I'm having a stroke? And so for people who don't know what Bell's palsy is... Bell's palsy is Bell's palsy occurs when there's this cranial nerve that gets affected. And scientists aren't quite sure how it happens. They haven't been able to necessarily pinpoint the source of it, but it happens. Sometimes people say that they've had a headache or it happens because of an infection. The point is, it's kind of like one of those things where scientists don't really know why it happens, but what does happen is that this cranial nerve is affected and it causes the paralysis. So if you were to draw a line, a vertical line down your face and it would split your face left side, right side, it acts on that cranial nerve and it paralyzes the face. So it in turn turns it into like a real housewives of probably Beverly Hills, I would say, disaster of a Botox situation where things are drooping. Except instead of like Dr. Nassif trying to save you, it's more steroids and some other medications that they try and use to suppress any inflammation that might occur. Now, the thing with Bell's palsy is that the recovery for it is very much individualized. And the other thing, too, is that when it happened to my mom, she wanted to go to the urgent care. She did not want 911 called. I remember thinking, well, I've seen this before because actually my dad... He's had Bell's palsy and he had a really severe form um, without going too much into what yours was. You had to relearn how to talk and like chew a lot of things. So yours was really severe to the point where you would almost think looking at him that he did have a stroke. But really, it was this cranial nerve that was inf and it was only that that was thankfully affected. And it took it took you months I think, to make a full recovery, like 100% recovery. And that's not necessarily typical for everybody, but what is more than likely typical is that you come into the ER, even though, I like to say, even though I have a little bit of a 
pretty good intuition on figuring out Bell's palsy versus a stroke, you're still going to get that workup to rule out whether or not a stroke has happened. Time is tissue, so we don't waste time with that. And once you get that, that all clear that it's not a stroke, that it's Bell's palsy, most patients go home with prescriptions and to follow up with their doctor and to do some things at home and to do things outpatient. But in my mom's case, something curious happened and the doctors wanted to admit her, which doesn't occur in most types of Bell's palsy, right? Correct. Were You weren't admitted, were you? No, you weren't admitted. You went to the... No. They gave you... What did they no, do actually, for yours? I went... Um, I went on a two-week regiment of... Um, I think they were steroids, weren't they? Um, I think and, so. And I added on my own a... Um, when I found out that the concern was the muscle atrophy aspect to it, um, I started massaging my face with this hand massager more. And I would do it three times a day. And uh, because I did, my PCP stated that you didn't want to lose that muscle tone in it uh, because that could be a permanent thing. And I, that, that was the one thing I really didn't want. And you're right, mine was really severe. I did have to learn how to chew and and, and uh, brush my teeth. And, and it was embarrassing trying to eat dinner with, with the family because things would fall out. And so it... Um, it was, but it was a regiment that I got put on, and I did it, and uh, I surprised a lot of people because uh, the specialist that was handling that was really surprised. And I, I to this day, I said it was because of the fact that I added that massage thing throughout the, the day. Uh, it was almost a daily thing to me, so... Um, I, I did, I made it through that, but it did take a, a while, a long while, actually. So with mom, I mean, in a way, when we heard Bell's palsy, I think we all, me and you and, and my brother and the whole family, we were all kind of like, oh, we've been through this before. We can, this will be fine. Bell's palsy, we can handle that. Okay. But when the doctors wanted to keep her, yeah. that's when we were thinking, oh, wait, no, 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 something else must be in play because dad got to go home and we did all follow up for him. Yeah. Why does, why, what concerned them enough to say that she needs to be kept for at least the night? And I think you talked about it, but you said that's, that's a little bit when that sort of antennas go up and that's when you kind of go, huh, that's not like, well, especially for you. You basically were probably thinking, well, that's not what yeah, happened with me. That's exactly what I was thinking. Because when they talked about her white cell count being so low, and it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> and that was, like I said, my antenna kind of went up. Going, that That's different. That did not happen to me. And she didn't want to stay. So this is the thing about the ER, and this is the thing about the hospital. Is that we can't hold people against their will. The only time that we ever get any say in that is usually when people legally, they need to stay there because they're a danger to themselves or a danger to others. So for a majority of people, that doesn't come into play. If you say, no thanks, I'm going to go home. I'll deal with this at home. I want to go home. We'll let you go home. It's against medical advice and we will no doubt worry about you, but we can't keep you there. So mom did not want to stay. She basically, I think, wanted to make sure it wasn't a stroke. And so did she sign out? Did she actually sign out AMA against medical advice? 
Yes, she did. We took her home. Yeah, so we did. And then this is where my timeline kind of gets a little muddled because she passed out uh, either a few a few weeks later. No. Uh, no, no. She she was she actually she went back to work That's and right. uh, um, and, and worked for an in between there. In fact, she did a right. And uh, Pirate. it wasn't going away, though. That was the thing. Each month, still staying with her. She's wearing the iPad patch, and she was on the pirate thing. She was. And, uh, um, she pulled it off very well. She was worried about that a lot because uh, of the droopiness in her face and the eye patch and uh, all those sort of things. Um, she went back to her PCP, uh, her doctor. They did a number of tests and things like that, but again, that's when the antenna was really going up because her doctors were talking different things off and on, and and I'm not too sure um, Mom was sharing a lot with us in that what they were saying to her, and that was the second time I thought, well, maybe I should push this, and, and I didn't uh, again, and uh, I thinking back, I. I I thought about this over the years, and um, um, maybe I should have pushed a little more. But, I mean, those are the things that we do sometimes and are not do. Well, I just remember after that, it, it must have been a few months afterwards that she passed out for the first time. First time. We, we were at the gym. You and I were at the gym. We came back home, and she said, I just got off the floor. I got passed out. And I said, uh, let's go to the emergency room. Right. And she said it kind of nonchalant. I remember she, like, opened the door because we come in through the yeah. garage and was like, oh, you're home. Hey, by the way, I think I just passed out. Yeah. Again, we go back to the emergency room. <laughs> right. I don't... Well, I drove her then. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I don't... I think I came a little bit later then because I had to do stuff for, for school, I think. I think you said to me, you know what, I'll take her and then I'll yeah. just keep you updated. You have to work on something for school. Just do that. Try and, like, get it done and... You know, if I need you to come down here, I'll call you. I said, okay. Because, I mean, like I said, still in nursing school at right. this point. Nursing school is, you're on group projects, you're doing a lot of stuff. So, I mean, you were like, she looks okay. I'm just going to get her evaluated. And, you know, if, if something comes up, I'll call you. And so, I wasn't there for all yeah. of this. I just remember her coming home. The doctor there, he was concerned about the blood work again. This is the ER doctor. And he, he mentioned that. And... He was almost going to do a blood transfusion at that time. And I don't know why he didn't do it, but I think your mom said, no, no, I'm feeling kind of okay. Uh, um, and kind of talked him out of it. He said, well, maybe you can go home and then if it, it happens again, then come right back and we can do the transfusion then or something along those lines. So that's what we did. So that's probably about through the summer. And I think it's during the summer that uh, at home, she started not being able to keep food down. Correct. So We got near our anniversary date and she couldn't eat the paella. So my dad makes this amazing paella um, that <laughs> he's, he's honed in over the years. Um, it is a secret family recipe. Do not try to ask me or ask him on my behalf or anything like that through me for the <laughs> recipe because it, it will go with me and it will stay in our family and only our family. It's, it's unbelievable, yeah. but at the same time, it's very, not only is it good, but it's a celebration. Like you said, you make it during the summer 
my parents' anniversary is in July, and and so it's a it's like the perfect summer meal, really, especially in our family because yeah. we love everything in it. So my dad makes it a little bit different. It's probably the reason why. I can never really necessarily eat paella anywhere else. <laughs> it's true. I've tried. When I was in Australia, they had paella, and I was like, ooh, I don't think so. <laughs> or I tasted some of it, and I was like, oh, that's nice. And in the back of my head, I'm like, they didn't use saffron. That in the broth. Um, <laughs> they did. They just, made, they just made it yellow. I just right. remember, though, that's the meal that mom looked forward to so much because with my parents and, and the way that, you know, their anniversary yeah. fell and stuff, it's a whole celebration for like a, a solid week, um, I would say. And and it goes along with paella and, yeah. you know, my parents met overseas and they have all these great memories associated with it. So it's really kind of like this great celebration for this whole week leading up to the big paella at the end of it. And that's when those antenna were like at full like upright for you because my mom's appetite had been going down down and down and down to the point where she would drink maybe one and a half inches per day and she yeah. would she would be retching and having it come back up on her throughout the day sometimes she was trying all these different things to calm her stomach but the thing was she she was still trying to work and do projects for other people. And she's also, she was also, let's see, not going to her doctor, even though, I mean, this is, this, at this point, it had been steadily going this way for weeks, almost months. And she never really thought to go to her doctor, or if she did, she just didn't think it was that big of a deal. You know, she's losing a lot of weight very rapidly. She's getting weak. So at this point, I think is when she needed the cane, right? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah, you are. It started to, well, there's another time that she passed out, and that's when uh, we went to the hospital and they kept her, and that started the whole that's when thing she, that was going on. Yeah, that's what I was, I was going to build into that one, because that's when, that's when oh, she oh. went, she never left in a way. So right. That was probably shortly thereafter because I remember she couldn't keep down the paella. So that was in the July region. And then my school started, my Mm -hmm. next semester started in August of nursing school. And I remember my mom was in the hospital, I think, right when it started or like the week before nursing school started. And yeah, yeah. So it was basically from August until November that we all commuted back and forth between what we were doing for work to the hospital to school to the hospital to clinicals to the hospital to work to the hospital but basically august until november was what is that august september october november so it's about three and a half i would say that's basically three months because she she basically was in that first part of november um so let's let's say during those three months that's when we saw the rapid deterioration and and that's where i think you said that it was the the three months that you can recall so vividly um that you you wrote notes and and how many shift changes what'd you say it was you always say this 187 shift changes in nurses and only one bad nurse so he always likes to never forget that he always likes to say that and i always say that that's that's going to be the title of your book <laughs> is the shift nurses or the shift change. What is it? What? 100 and what was it? 87. 87. So, so that's going to be, that's going to be the title of his book. It's going to be coming out sometime in the future. 187 shift changes by Paul dad. 
But he did. I mean, we all, so when she got admitted to the hospital and she never, essentially, she left, but not with the result that we wanted. It started in August. It started after she passed out the second time. And I think at that point, the reason why she stayed was because she knew it was bad. She knew that it was going to be getting bad and that she needed help. I think up until then, she'd been trying so hard to tell everybody it's okay. It's just, it's just stress. The Bell's palsy is still here. I'm working on a few different projects. It's just life. But when she passed out that second time, I think that was the time that she admitted that she needed more help to try and get out of where she was in terms of get better and to go home. That was what I think her end result always was, right? Correct. Plus, they were trying to diagnose what was wrong with her. She had about a 15-doctor team that were checking everything, everything from infectious diseases, then you name it, they, they, they were, they were testing her for it. And, um, it was, uh, it was very puzzling. And, um, she was so basically that, like that show Mystery that Diagnosis it. where nobody yeah, could figure yeah. out what was going on. So dad, go ahead and kind of like help me out with the timeline. So she got there in about August and. Sure. And we were told it was it was probably anemia. And she, I remember she was getting her first blood transfusions and she was really nervous about it because she didn't like the idea that yeah. somebody else's blood that she didn't know was going to be in her. And she was afraid she'd get a reaction, which honestly, that happens all the time to patients. And I would have the same reaction, too. If I didn't know it was my blood or the blood of my loved one that I'm getting, of course, I'm going to be concerned that something could go wrong. Your mind always goes to worst case scenario. And especially when you're in the hospital and you're not feeling good, you want to believe that everybody has your best interest. But the what ifs are surrounding you all the time, especially when you're in a bed and, you know, you're too weak to get out of bed, walk the the hundred feet over to the bathroom and walk back without needing help. So you're just scared of everything going wrong because it's already sort of at this crisis state with your body not feeling well. So I remember her being nervous about that. And I remember her telling her that, you know, the nursing student within me at that point, I was like, mom, it's okay. They do this like every single day. They have so many checks in place that reactions, I mean, are very rare. And there's a reason why they monitor you so closely in the first 15 minutes. So you always monitor people in the first 15 minutes of a blood transfusion because that has been shown to be the peak time where people will get a reaction to the transfusion and you have enough time to stop it and they won't have a lot of it in them. So you can give a lot of medications to help alleviate any reaction. So I was explaining all that to her and she was like, I understand that, but I'm still scared. And looking back on it, I think it wasn't just the blood transfusion she was afraid of. I think she understood that she needed to be in the hospital for a while and she was scared. Yeah, we all were. Because up until uh... then, she never needed hospitalization. I mean, outside of probably having having kids, but she... Oh, and she had the... um, the thyroid thing i remember when i was younger where she did have a surgery with that but that was only like a one or two night stay and she never went to the hospital after that and that was like almost decades you know right so my mom was in really good health and i think we were all scared because this is the first time somebody in our family is sick and we don't know what from did her anemia really get that bad and we didn't realize it or what else is going on because this just doesn't seem like 
it's just anemia. And that's what her medical team was trying to figure out too. So now I could kind of, at least from a nurse perspective, I can tell you from the healthcare side of things, we don't like to not be in the know about things. We want to find answers just as much as patient family members and patients do. But when you can't give this person an answer and you can only rule out everything it's not, but you can't tell them what it is, it's as frustrating for you as it is for us. So I remember she needed the blood yeah, transfusion. We, uh, right. And she was on that regimen for a while with all the blood transfusions. How many um, did she get? And, oh, my gosh. I don't know. I, I, I do know uh, there was a, a number of them. And in talking with some of the doctors and things, I, I, that's when I really knew that this was serious because you can only get so much blood. I mean, it was like this is going to really start developing into something that, that that's beyond what we can do right now. So that was a big, big thing, and it was it was ongoing. And her team kept testing and trying to find different things, and she had different signs, and it was very, very puzzling. Um, and they were to a point where I, they were meeting like every morning and going through different scenarios and things that they could do and I, I, all the different things that we went that she went through I ended up taking FMLA from, from work uh, to be with her and we started doing that shift assignments where I did the overnights and the uh, grandmother did the day shift uh, so it was um it was a tough, tough time for us during all that, that, right. that area. And, um, we were all thinking initially, okay, she's going to be able to come home. They're going to get her strengthened right. up. She's, she's dealing, she, she, I remember she was going on telling me about like, are you training for your marathon? Because I had a marathon coming up that next January and she was, asking me about school and stuff being like you need to be on your projects like my mom was still my mom even if she was in a hospital bed giving blood transfusions she was she was more concerned about the fact that like you better not be missing your classes make sure you're doing well get your training in you know she's she was still invested and that's you know one of the i love my mom for that always but she was she was a mom through and through you know she was asking about everybody else and even from the hospital bed, you know, that's, that she's the, she's the matriarch of our family. She's asking about, you know, she, she'd be watching Dancing with the Stars, uh, with you yeah. and yeah. asking about my day because I, I hadn't called yet or something, right? Right. Or something to that effect. You know, she's, she's still keeping up to date with everything. But at some point, I don't remember this and I'm going to try not to like bring up stuff, but. Why was the first time that she needed to be in the ICU? What had happened? Was it a GI bleed? Was she getting a bleed in her GI tract and it was too bad? Or am am I remembering things a little bit incorrectly? No, no, no. Yeah, um, it was that. And she had a reaction. Actually, they they lost her for about seven seconds there. And um, they had to move her there. Oh, yeah, I was there. And uh, um, the the nurse came over to me and um, said, she told me, she said, we got her back, but you know, she was gone there for a while, and, and it, it, it and it was it was unbelievable. It was like a 
almost a, a, a dream that was going on. And But I always believed that she was going to come home. Like you mentioned earlier, I thought she was going to fight through it and we were going to have one of those successful things she would have to do a lot of work but uh, yeah we'd have to do some physical therapy she'd have to get back that muscle strength but everybody was like everybody was like team you know team mom we were all about team mom we not teen mom like team mom and and we were going to be able to get her back home and we're going to figure it out and this is just going to be a a really weird way to end 2010, but we'd be fine. 2011, this would be her comeback year. She'd have a bigger comeback than, than like Fabio or somebody. Wait, who's a good person that had a good comeback? Britney Spears. Britney Spears had a comeback. She'd have a Britney Spears level comeback. She'd be playing in Vegas, <laughs> doing, doing, doing shows and all that stuff. But no, really, our family, we're very religious in our family and very much connected with that part of our faith and we had this immense amount of support at that time with the prayers that were there to strengthen not only my mom but to strengthen us as a family and we really did feel that so to the people that do listen to this were involved at that time you know that we love you at that point before that point and to this day in the future we're always grateful for what you've done for us but at that time we definitely needed all the prayers we could get we needed prayers from every deity because it was a very stressful time to be unknown like we we just didn't know what was going on and that's one of the biggest fears you have is the fear of the unknown right it was amazing because her medical team the docs and 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 all the nurses they were so involved with you know you're not we're not my ship. You're gonna work. We're gonna work you through. You're gonna be okay. We're gonna find out what's wrong with you. And I mean, it was uh, it was amazing. The medical staff, all the way from the, the, the technicians through the all the specialists that we worked with through all that time, they were just totally fantastic and totally dedicated. Some of them would come down there late, late at night. I'm talking one, two in the morning because something came to their brain and they wanted to check some things with her. Um, it was, um, it was amazing. Uh, the care that she got was, was no doubt first rate, but it was just, um, it was a big push to see what was going on and, and to help her. And, uh, um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my family. It was a heck of a summer. Well, just to piggyback off of just the medical team, I remember one time I walked in for some things that happen with the body, especially after prolonged antibiotics, which my mom was getting a lot of antibiotics in an effort to figure out what's going on. You end up developing something called C. diff. And as a healthcare provider, you have to wear gowns and gloves. And I remember walking in one time, gowned and gloved, because you have to be as a loved one too. If you have, if you want to touch their hand, you have to do it through the gloves. But I remember seeing a doctor helping to hold mom while they changed out the linens. And I've never seen that before in my life in the ER. Well, in the ER, I've seen doctors help us as nurses, but on the floors, you know, that was something that I was like, this is a testament to the respect that the doctors have for my dad. I mean, my family and my mom, where the doctor was like, I'm going to help this nurse out. I'm going to help this tech out. I'm going to help them. I'm going to help my patient out. And that's, 
that was something that I saw from a doctor who did that. And then I saw it from another doctor who did the same sort of thing when they needed a little bit of help with something. They helped move her um, when she was uh, tubed, when she had the breathing tube down there. They helped move her into bed. And that continued on throughout her stay because I can tell you, and I can tell you this, Dad, there are patients that stay with you. And there are patients that stay with you, I'm sure, as a doctor as well, when you're trying to find out what's wrong with your patient. And for three months, these professionals were perplexed by what was happening with mom. And the least they could do in those moments when they couldn't offer an answer is to help with holding something or help with getting her cleaned up because it makes you feel like I am doing something physically for this patient and now I'm going to go back and be renewed with this energy to figure out what is going on with them. Um, So I think a lot of those doctors and the nurses and the techs and everybody involved felt like they were they had to find this they had to find out what was wrong and in the meantime they had to just keep things okay with with her and with us as the family and keep checking in with us and i think a lot of them went over and beyond and you do that you don't play you don't play favorites in in healthcare but you do play favorites in healthcare and when there's people who are truly grateful for every single little thing that you do in providing health care to them or their family member, you don't feel like you're going out of your way for them. And I like to say I treat everybody like they're my loved one. But if you're throwing a urinal full of urine at me, I'm hoping we're not related. <laughs> but when you have these these people come in who have just this gratitude and truly they're just very grateful for your for what you do for their family member, you do go out of your way. And I mean, I'll just say it like that. You you do go out of your way. So kind of circling back on that, you know, we're going through all this stuff. And so she, she gets the tube out. She's more stable. They move her down to another unit. And then I think they figured out at some point that her spleen was enlarged. And so that let them down the track because at one point we were told it's definitely not cancer. And then they, they did another scan, I think, of her abdomen after a while to figure out something else that was going on. Right. And they found out that her spleen was enlarged. So one of the doctors, I remember, said that, well, maybe we'll take out the spleen. Maybe this will help things, um, you know, or at least we can biopsy it, see if there's something going on there that we might have been missing for a while. Because they had told her, I think, that her spleen had been enlarged, but it wasn't causing a problem, so they weren't going to go in, especially because she was losing blood. But when she was more stable, they were going to take it out. Right. That was the infectious disease physician who was amazing. And he he found... We love that man. Well, he... Yeah. He was on the path. That's when they found that she had an ancillary gallbladder. Was it gallbladder or pancreas? But it, no, it was her spleen. Yeah, she had a second spleen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the ancillary my mom spleen. had two spleens. Oh, yeah, and um, that's when they found it. They sent it to uh, the Mayo Clinic, and the diagnosis came back because it was literally hiding in the ancillary spleen area. So it wasn't until she was more stable enough that they were able to go in and take this out, and then they found that one, they send it off, and that's when we get the answer. So that's when we finally get the answer. So my mom had, what was it, Dad? Peripheral T-cell lymphoma. Right, so... And it only happens in 2% of the population. 
and it's an aggressive form of lymphoma. So lymphoma is a blood cancer. Yeah. It's part of the blood cancer family is what I should say. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, yeah. uh, DKMS, Be The Match, all those organizations have become near and dear to my heart and to my family's heart. But peripheral T-cell lymphoma is technically a form of a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but it's its own sort of diverse uh, lymphoma because it's it's very aggressive. It's just to kind of give you guys more background. It happens, uh, it develops from the mature stage of a white blood cell called the T-cells, and there are also natural killer cells, so that's always fun to have natural killer cells. They do good things in your body, but when you have the peripheral T-cell, lymphoma it's just that it can go haywire (laughs) i guess is the best way of saying it but it is it's it's a very fast aggressive growing type of lymphoma just to kind of see if i can give you all a little bit more background on it so with the peripheral t-cell lymphoma unfortunately it doesn't have the best prognosis didn't the doctor say that, what was that one doctor? Remember there was one doctor that told you the longest time they've ever had a patient alive was how many months? Uh, it wasn't months, it was six weeks. Right, sorry. It was six weeks and and we were the ones that were like, well, she's had it for at least three months. So this is a very aggressive form. Now, the other thing too is that there were a few other things in play, but my mom died of cancer and complications related to cancer treatment because... She, when they found it, she was still at that point somewhat strong enough to get a little bit of the therapy started. So again, this had to have been what in in October that we got the the diagnosis. It was. Yep. I shaved my yeah, head the week was, after. Well, we had tickets to the B fifty two concert. Well, that's Remember true. at the yes. stake fair. Because I had shaved my head, right, like two days before that. Yes. Okay, so this happened in October that we got the diagnosis. So go over the timeline again. January, she gets the Bell's palsy. She faints a couple times, and then she comes back into the hospital in August. October, we get told that it's this form of cancer, that it's the T-cell lymphoma. And we all are like, oh, thank goodness. We have a diagnosis. We have a treatment plan. We can do the doctors can do this and that and all these different options. She just needs to get a little bit stronger so she can, you know, uh, so that she can get this treatment and maybe she can get a bone marrow transplant. We were also thinking about that because, you know, that can, that can extend her life span to the point where maybe we can get more treatments on, on board and this can go into remission. I mean, it's an aggressive form of lymphoma, but at the same time, this is blood cancer research is like changing by the month and it really is. So we were all kind of like, yes, here's our answer. We have a few different routes we can go down for treatment. So even in October, we're all thinking she's going to be able to come home. She's just going to need to get some strength. We're going to need to get some treatment. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to do this. We're going to end this year on a good note. I think she got, what did they say was going to be her first dose? It was like a, a chemo, right? Yeah, So. It was. So it was the red bag chemo, too. Red bag, right. Yeah. So I'm not too well-versed in the world of oncology. And I know that there are some oncology people who listen to this who are probably, like, screaming at me right now, telling me what I'm saying wrong or what the drug is. But all I know is that it's called the red bag. And 
that is the the one chemo that like can hit people pretty pretty hard it like knocks them out for a bit as what i've been told um but my mom's numbers were good enough that they wanted to be pretty darn aggressive with it while she still had that strength so that hopefully we would trend towards a good direction in getting her more and more treatment right right so what happened with that though well we went in they they did the, the first round and within eight hours after doing that she lapsed rushed down to the uh, icu it was just she started to deteriorate from there um everything from major organ failure to i mean it was everything she she started turning yellows and she had pneumonia and uh, it was just all those things were starting to pile up i remember that she ended up needing to be tubed again she ended up needing a breathing tube yeah she had to do that and then once she had it because they had to go in and stop the, she had internal bleeding. She and, had a, uh, something called uh, DIC, right? Right. So people have a little background on what DIC is and what it stands for. That is disseminated intravascular coagulation. And so this is what happens uh, when small blood clots develop throughout the bloodstream. And it blocks small blood vessels. So with the increase clotting that's going on inside the bloodstream it actually depletes the platelets and clotting factors needed to control bleeding and thus that means that the floodgates are open and there's excessive bleeding so sometimes you'll hear that when a person has dic that they're bleeding from everywhere and that's really what it is is that they are bleeding from everywhere because they don't have any clotting factors to stem the bleeding and there's a lot of causes for it Infection and surgery can do it. It's usually due to an underlying disorder. So if you treat that disorder, you treat that condition, you stop the bleeding, but you need to do some symptom management along with it. So just imagine, though, that she's she's entering into this multiple organ failure. She's got pneumonia. She just had a round of chemo. She's been weak for a while. And now there's DIC. So... Her body is just getting more and more exhausted. Yeah, she didn't have the strength anymore. So this is where it, it, it kind of gets, I guess, more personal uh, and less, less-ish medical terms. I remember there was a point where we all sort of changed our thinking from, oh, she's going to come home. She's going to come home to her home that she's going to is not our home. Like, I just remember it just happened real fast that we all knew she was going to be passing on. I mean, honestly, I I just, I remember that very much being somewhat crystal clear. And then along with it, I remember the sense of peace with that outcome. And it was odd because I'm in nursing school this whole time. And my instructors, my classmates are asking about my mom constantly because I always said this, if you ever have a life situation happen being in the nursing degree is probably the best major to be in because you have people who are so empathetic and sympathetic to your cause. My classmates were amazing. My instructors were so understanding. And I remember that 
one of the weeks previously, I was like, she's getting this chemo, she's doing this and that. We're really excited. Her blood counts were starting to come up. And then everyone was so excited. And then I remember I walked in, I think after that weekend, and somebody was like, how's your mom? And I was like, you know what? She's going to be going wherever the Lord is going to take her. And they were like, you've never said that before. And I was like, I know, but I know that she's going to be walking down a different path that we than we all would like. But we're going to be okay, and she's going to be okay. I remember saying that to somebody or something along those lines. I just remember that was that was the truth, that it changed that just that fast. Because I remember telling somebody, yeah, her blood counts came up. And then when they came back down, I think that next day, it was like that's when it set in that her body was... It was, it was exhausted. It had done everything it could, and we needed to start to transition to, let's just kind of keep her comfortable. Let's, let's make sure that everybody that needs to be here is here, and that we're all going to go through this together. But I don't know about you, but I remember that's what I was thinking. I was, I was on automatic pilot. <laughs> it was, uh, I was doing all the things that I felt I had to do and, and trying to keep people informed and working with our priests and doing a, a lot of different things, uh, talking with your, your Uncle Mark. And it, it, it was a, just a, a, a period that I was doing things and, and busy and it was a fall. My, it was things that I had to do. I remember everything distinctly, and, and, and each day was a different aspect. And uh, um, you guys were fantastic. The medical team was fantastic. Uh, our religious team was unbelievable. And uh, um, I was just sort of a director. I remember that on Wednesday, because I remember she passed away on a Friday, but on that Wednesday... Mm -hmm. This is where I'm definitely going to start to melt a little bit, so hang on for a second. I remember looking up the clock. I was in my clinicals. It was our one of our last sort of simulations for the semester. Everybody in my class had been amazing because they knew I was going through this, and they all were like, whatever we can do to help, whatever we can do to help. And I remember I had to keep time anyways, but for some reason, I looked up at the clock at about 8.38, and I just felt something. I, there's no way to describe it, but I just felt something. And I remember that night, you right. told me they almost lost her this yeah. morning, but they got her back. Yeah. And we're going to say goodbye to yeah. her on Friday. And I remember that right. my brother said something similar, like right around 8.38, he felt something. And and right. I don't know if you did, but but I'd like to think oh, that... Yeah, well, I was I'd like to think that that was her saying, like, you know, when I go, you guys are going to be okay. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, there's no other way of describing it. But I do remember on I that. Know. You, I remember that was that, you know, you're right. You're exactly right. Uh, uh, I met, there was a male nurse um, who was there who, who, when we brought her back, I remember him telling me, how close it came and it was like yeah i i i knew then too and then we uh, came back on that that friday 
And Friday was the day yeah. that, that we were going to, to say goodbye. Friday afternoon. Um, yeah. A lot of yeah. our family was there. A lot of our, our friends yeah. that, that are essentially our family uh, in every way but blood. Right. <laughs> they were also there with yeah. us. And I remember that day very clearly. But at the same time, like you said, it was autopilot. It was very much like... I remember it clearly, but I remember being a person watching it all happen, but also being there. The story I have about that is this, and you'll remember this, is at 3.46 p.m., that hospital that we were in always had an announcement when babies were born. They would do the lullaby song, and that's when baby was born. Um, the mom passed away at that time, and right at that moment, a baby was born. And it was like, oh my, it, it was, I remember looking at our priest, and we looked each other deep in the eyes, and, went, and I said, did you hear that? A baby was just born. <laughs> and we we both were crying, and uh, it, it was, it, it was, amazing sort of thing and light everything's so dark and cold there anyway but there was a big light coming through the through uh, the window and uh, it was just like that sign and and i think our religious aspect uh you know that that was our sign of peace that that, that she had uh, she had gone and uh, um i um, i'll never forget that well and see what I won't forget too is that my um, my brother and I we were we were sitting in the waiting area in the family waiting room part of the ICU, and we heard the chime. We looked at each other, and we both looked towards this window, and we saw just this ball of light by the window, and then it was gone. And uh, shortly thereafter, you came out and you told us that. It was peaceful. It was quick. Yeah. She was ready to go. So all those things just gave me the sense of peace and understanding that her journey was done here. So now I really have to be accountable for my actions because she can follow me everywhere now that she's on a different plane (laughs) of existence. So, um, but it, it was this enormous comfort in this time of great turmoil to be like, she's still there. She's still going to be watching for you, whether you like it or not. And and when you ask for her to be around, she's going to be there. And and she is. She, she is present in in ways I, I sometimes don't understand until after the fact. Um, or, or I just feel very strongly out of nowhere. And it's always emotional. Sometimes it's happy. Sometimes it's tearful. Sometimes it's both. And... It's amazing, in a way, to to have that love constantly surrounding you and know that they're there. But I remember that uh, we walked back to her room, and they cleaned her up as best as they could. Postmortem care is one of the uh, well, it's it's indescribable doing that for somebody to prepare some a family member to see a loved one after they've passed. You try and do your best to clean them up and cover up things, but everybody's different in how they're going to react. I've been very blessed to have that 
moment with people as an ER nurse. It rips out your heartstrings, and, and it always will. I mean, it should. You know, you should be emotional mm-hmm. with these people. But I remember walking back, and she's still... We still had to be on precautions. And it's the one thing that it's always made me angry, I guess. Maybe not angry, but in the moment I was very angry. I understand it now. And it's that I couldn't hold her hand because I had to wear gloves and a gown. So... That was one thing I I didn't really like, was that I couldn't hold it, but at the same time, maybe that was good, because the last time I held her hand, there was warmth, and that was my skin-to-skin contact that I had with my mother, and that was when she was alive. So, in a way, like I said, after the fact, I've moved on from it, but in that moment, I was was very upset that I couldn't hold my, my mom's hand, because I had to wear a glove in order to touch her. So, I think... That whole experience shaped who I was as a nurse because, like I said, I treat every person like they're my loved one. They also treat their family as an extension of my family in the hours that I get to take care of them. And I saw a lot of good nurses that took care of mom. And I saw a few questionable nurses that took care of her too, but they were good. They were good nurses. So that's what I've tried to do. I agree. But you have done that, and as your father, I've been with you through this whole journey, and I I know what you did, and I, I remember when the school told you that, hey, if you could, uh, you know, if you need to, you know, take off the semester, take off the year, uh, we have no problem with that, you know, you're an outstanding student, but... You told them, no, I'm finished this for my mom's sake, and you did that. I always said that she saw me uh, She saw me get into nursing school physically, you know, and she would see me through to graduation, and, and she was there. That's why I didn't fall down in the heels that I had to wear, was because, God help me, mom was there helping me cross that stage to shake that hand. But I think that... But you had uh, to walk down the I'm telling you, she was there because I would have, I would have, I would have stumbled. Um, it's a, it's a great gift in a way to have lost her when I did and going through nursing school and having this goal of being a nurse because, you know, even in nursing school, I was like, well, I don't know if I really want to do this. You know, I don't know if I really want to be a nurse, but that solidified it. Cause I was just like, you are there with these people in these life changing moments and every room and every patient and every experience is going to be different. And it does a lot to you emotionally to be a nurse. In your 12-hour shifts alone, you deal with so many emotions on a personal level. And you deal with so many emotions from your patients and their loved ones level. And if I can be there for somebody in that moment, it's because my mom helps me from the beyond. Right. From whatever you believe in. Yeah. She helped me to be able to help others. That part of it was was there. And then the difficult part, I guess we're going to have to do another story on that. (laughs) For me, Mother's Day is all about that. As you know, I lost my mother three days before Mother's Day many, many years ago. But um, so I realized that I'm not a... I don't know. I get nervous around Mother's Day a lot of times, but having your mother, my wife, my best friend, it's a double thing for me every Mother's Day, but I still have my traditional things that I do 
at the cemetery and uh, to honor you, you had the best mother there ever was. And, and uh, I, she loved Mother's Day. I can see her smile, her little smile all the time. And, and uh, she loved being with you and, and, and your brother. And uh, that was your day with her. And each year, uh, we try to honor that and, and, and make sure that uh, that we do that. And all of those people with their moms do it and honor them and show them that what you think about them when they're here with you and when they're not, as we honor all mothers. And this Mother's Day, think about all the things that happen to, to you. Be there for well, I mean, do the Mr. things that you have to do. Yeah, and Mr. Yeah. T wrote a great song about that uh, decades ago called uh, Treat Her Right, Treat Your Mother Right. So that'll somehow be... Mr. T. Yeah. He, <laughs> um, it'll, it'll be a link in a show note, I promise, because uh, it might be a good way to, to well, lift your it, spirits, I guess. Uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> but honestly, you know, Mother's Day changed for me eight years ago. I, I did not want to celebrate it but it's everywhere i can't escape it it's on tv it's on advertisements i almost said adverse advertisements like i've been talking to too many people across the pond but it's everywhere so if you are a person who lost their mother in a physical sense in an emotional sense in a spiritual sense whatever this can be a rough day and i get that but no you're not alone there are a lot of people who empathize with you, who would maybe rather not have the typical Mother's Day celebration, and that's okay. If today is just another Sunday for you, then happy Sunday. If today you celebrate the mothers or the mother figures in your life, happy Mother's Day. But know that you're not alone in however you choose to observe today. I It took me a few years to really embrace Mother's Day without absolutely hating it. I love to see old photos of my mom, and I do still get clearly emotional about it, but a lot of it is happiness underlying. It's not so much sadness, and there are moments where I do get sad. There will be moments in the future where I will get sad, but it's good. You know, I've learned to to kind of embrace that and my dad and I sort of talked about this a little bit hinted at it before but you know down the road we'll we'll kind of go into a little bit about our healing process afterwards after the passing and and healing is all lifelong especially with the grief process so if today you choose to celebrate Mother's Day happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there if it's Sunday happy Sunday may this be the start of a great week ahead for you and Please be kind to yourself today. Do something good for yourself. Surround yourself with positive energy and the people that make you happy or the things that make you happy or whatever makes you happy today. That's what I want people to take away from this episode is that mothers are very important to us. They can be your blood or they can be the people in your life who have been there in some way for you that you identify as a mother figure and you can honor them however you would like to individual and just I don't know how to end this <laughs> what would you want to say as your takeaway dad well I think I did, <laughs> yeah, I, did. Uh, I just I honor tradition and and um, and respect and uh, I'll do that 
So I can't do that. <laughs> well, then, when, when, when you're not able, we will make sure. We will make sure. Absolutely. I know. But, I've been a fortunate man. And, uh, it's because of your mother that, that I have been able to, to have what I do and have what I have had throughout my life. And the time with her has been the greatest and the best in my life. So. Yeah, maybe the best way to close it out is uh, is to say that we wish all the mothers out there a happy happy Mother's Day. You bet. Happy Mother's Day. So, Dad, thank you for for coming yep. on and, and sharing some laughs and some tears and uh, some insight to maybe a little bit more of a, a personal thing for, for Mother's Day. And if you like my dad being on the show, guess what? Hopefully he'll be back, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, the healing process, definitely. Yeah, no, we'll figure it out. I think uh, I think it's very important to talk about the after of of what happens with things. So yeah, so he will definitely. Oh, we will definitely work on that together on how how best to to present that. And again, thanks to my dad for coming on. This has been really quite fun and insightful um, and definitely emotional, but it's a good thing. And uh, it's like Martha Stewart says, right? It's a good thing. So, again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. 